0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K E Y S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I've been cognizant of and awoke to systemic racism all my life. Well, I'm a 60 year old white, cisgender, straight man who finally realized. I do not want to pass from this mortal place without having punched at white supremacy, without taking a knock against patriarchy, without really leaning into a nativist, anti-immigrant stance. I cannot go to my grave not having tried. I cannot look my children in the eye If I didn't try, I have a moral responsibility to look at the experience of my fellow human beings through the lens of how can I make it better? How can I make a difference? And I'll be damned if I pass
2: through this life without having tried. That
1: was the lesson.
0: Jerry, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time
1: to join us. Thanks for having me back, Srini. It's just a delight to uh, reconnect with you. I remember with a lot of warmth and fondness our first conversation. So yeah, thanks for well, having me.
0: Likewise, it's, it's such a pleasure to have you back. I mean, you're one of those people, I think, whose work you know, I quote in my conversations with people, I, I revisit frequently, I think that it would be an understatement to say that it has had a very, very tangible impact on my thinking, uh, my behavior and my thought process about running a company. So mm-hmm. you have a new book out called Reunion, Leadership and the Longing to Belong, all of which we will get into. And mm-hmm. I wanted to start uh, by asking what I think is a very relevant question to this book, and that is, where were you born and raised and how did that end up shaping and influencing who you've become and what you've ended up doing
1: with your life. Well, I was born in Brooklyn, New York Mm -hmm. um, in 1963. So I turned 60 this year and uh, um, lived in a uh, house, 377 East 26th street between Avenue D and Clarendon road. For those who know Brooklyn, um, that was actually owned by my grandfather and um, we moved uh, and I described this in reunion we mm-hmm. We moved rather southern suddenly when I was ten years old and to a different part of Brooklyn and then I moved again when I was fourteen years old from Brooklyn to queens uh so I consider myself a an outer borough New Yorker.
0: Well, so, let's talk about the move because I very distinctly remember that um mm. uh, so you, I think the the place I want to start is like one give us a sense of what two things were like at the time, one is your sort of perception of truth and media because I remember when I had Cal Fussman here, I'd asked him about this, having mm. you know grown up in that time frame as well, and uh you know being in a position where he literally wrote a letter to the president after the JFK assassination mm. and got a response um and he was saying, you know, the thing that was so fascinating at that time versus media now is that Walter Cronkite was the, the one reliable source of truth. Mm. Talk to me about this sort of, um, I, what was going on in society at the time in terms of race relations as well as, as it relates to this whole idea of media and truth?
1: What an interesting question. So, um, I'm a little younger than Cal. Um, I was born a month after JFK was assassinated. But uh, relevant to your question, one of my earliest memories, um, I was about six years old or turning six. I remember uh, 1969 uh, for a couple of things. One, I remember watching uh, the Eagle landing on the moon, the Luna module. But I also remember, um, I think it was 1968, I remember the feelings of both Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy uh, being shot. And um, I was number six of seven kids. Um, I was also acutely aware of, uh, in, in that kind of terrified little boy way, of the world at large. Um, there were a number of teenagers, 17, 18 year olds who were being drafted to go serve in Vietnam and some of them were not coming home. Um, my brother who was of that age, my brother Vito, uh, was, um, selected, but, uh, had fallen arches or something like that. So he actually never served. But I remember the time, and you specifically ask about race relations, and you know the most relevant piece here was that this was a time, uh, when in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, uh, uh, transformed from a predominantly white, um, Irish, Italian, uh, maybe German neighborhood, to a predominantly Caribbean and Caribbean Black. Neighborhood and and African American those with roots in the United States for at least two generations. Um, and I remember the tensions that we saw on the television more than anywhere else. There were race riots in Haiti in uh, Little Haiti in Miami. There was riots in Newark, New Jersey. There were riots in L.A. Um, and so long-winded, uh, our experience of the world was limited through a small little 20-inch black and white TV, Walter Cronkite being one of the people who explained the world to us. And what it felt like was that the world was coming apart at it, its seams, and that it was an incredibly dangerous place. Um, and uh, the truth is that it continues to mark me to this day to think of the world. In that way.
0: Well, one uh, thing you mentioned is the story of your best friend. Uh, if I remember correctly, his name Mark, was Marcus, and never saw him again. And mm. part of this move was motivated by the changes in your neighborhood, right?
1: Right. So um, I was about ten or eleven years old, and it was late fall, early winter, and. Um, Marcus had gone to visit relatives in Alabama. And uh, one night, my father went out for his nightly run uh, to the grocery store to get two six packs of beer. And when he was coming back, he noticed that this older guy uh, was sort of walking down the street kind of drunkenly. He had just come out of a bar when he noticed a group of teenagers jump him and start beating the guy and my father reacted by running down the street screaming yelling help help call the police and the kids the teenagers turned on my father and they beat him uh, terribly broke his leg in three places he walked with a limp for the rest of his life and within three or four weeks uh we moved to a completely different part of Brooklyn a predominantly white neighborhood in Brooklyn and i uh never got a chance to say goodbye to my friend marcus i never got a chance to say goodbye to the only place that i had known as my home um we took a break over christmas vacation I left school, and then I came back after Christmas vacation and was in another school.
2: And uh, I can tell you about
1: going back and visiting. Uh, Yeah, please. Which, Yeah. So actually, after the manuscript to reunion was done, um, I still had this yearning to return. And uh, this past summer, Accompanied by um, two really good friends who actually shot a video of this experience, I went back to Brooklyn. I'd been back to Brooklyn many, many times, and I stayed in Brooklyn. I lived in Brooklyn for many, many years. But I almost purposely, yet unconsciously, stayed away from this part of Flatbush. And um, this summer,
2: uh,
1: I went back to the old neighborhood. And I uh, stopped in front of the house that I was born in. And um, it was a, an incredibly powerful experience because it had been 50 years since I was there. And the house is in the midst of uh renovation. It had just recently been sold. And um, as I walked down the street, my friends noted that I seemed like I walked with a swagger and I laughed because unexpectedly I felt like I was home. Like this is where I belong. And, um, you know, I would point out, well, that's where we played stoop ball and that was home base for our stick ball. And this is what we did over here. And this is what we, and as I was standing there, <clears throat> one of the things that was incredibly wonderful was the fact that, um, the street was really well tended and that all the homes were really well taken care of and that there were a lot of young trees on the, on the street and planters out front. And as I stood in front of the old house, a man came outside. He was probably a little younger than me, maybe in his fifties, uh, a black man. And I, uh, said, fuck it. I'm not going to get this opportunity again. So. I walked up to him, uh, and to be clear, he walked out of what, in my mind, is Marcus's house. And um, I stuck my hand out, I introduced myself, and I said, I was born in this house, and I haven't been back for 50 years. And he sort of gave me this really odd look like, what are you doing here? What is this about? Um, But then as we started talking, um, I noted, the planters and how well-tendered the the street was. And he had come out to water some some pots of flowers in front of his house. And I said, you know, I was really pleased. And he pointed across the street at this uh, woman who was going back into her house. And he said, well, if we don't take care of our house, she yells at all of us. And we started to laugh. And uh, we exchanged names. And um, I took a really uh, lovely selfie with him. And uh, I told him about uh, my best friend Marcus and how he grew up in that house. It it was a powerful sense of closure.
2: It was a, you know, I left terrified. And I came back
1: uh, with a sense of completion and a sense of closure um, that is still affecting me
2: cuz this was only just a few months ago so
0: one thing with that incident with your dad particularly like leading mm-hmm. to the kind of injury where he walks around with a limp for the rest of his life like that could easily have planted the seeds for like lifelong hate
2: mm-hmm
0: and lifelong racism, hmm. like, why does that happen to some people, and why didn't it happen to you?
1: So, um, and I, I don't think I gave this detail, but the teenagers were black. Um, I think you're right that it could have developed that um, feeling inside of me. I think that the that there was, and there, you know, like all of us. Um there is some internalized racism that um it fed um for me uh it was part of a lot what happened for me was a larger um sense of dislocation and a sense of fear um fear of the other and um you know, this was at a time, you know, the backdrop of riots and conflict. Um, at the time, you know, I moved from a predominantly black neighborhood to a predominantly white neighborhood, and I started interacting with people who actually had no understanding of anybody outside their small cohort, their small demographic. Um. And even at an early age, 12, 13 years old, it became pretty clear to me that this point of view was kind of stupid. That it was, um, you know, that as much as I might, as many of us might be uh, profoundly shaped by systemic racism. Um, and a systemic fear of the other. Um, I think every time that that fear came up for me, I would um, encounter and remember what I knew to be true, which was um, I had these other relationships that, that spanned the... Constructs in which that were, that it felt like it was being forced on me. Um, I think that the, the longer term implication or the more obvious implication for my family of this experience was a profound fear of things like the subway or, or, you know, New York City in the 70s was a pretty, pretty rough environment. And um there was uh, that fear that was not necessarily linked to a partic- particular person's racial identity. But I want to be clear, like so many people, there's no way that I escaped internalized racism.
0: That still exists. Well, let's come back to the internalized racism idea, because I want, I want to dig a little bit deeper into mm-hmm. that as well. But there's something that came to my mind as I was going through this book, right? Uh, it, like, we have this really sort of pervasive anti-immigrant sentiment uh, in our culture right now. And yep. yet, the funny thing is, if we trace the roots back of the people who have that sentiment, they are all descendants of immigrants. Right.
1: So talk to me about that. Well, it's, it's, uh, I spend a lot of time on that. And I want to be clear that I think that there is a, uh, profoundly powerful through line that connects whether it's anti Black, anti Asian racism, uh, homophobia, transphobia, patriarchy to an anti immigrant stance. And, Uh, You're right, Srini, there is this profound conflict um, in the American soul, which is uh,
2: uh, to be nativist,
1: despite the fact that um, we are all descendant of uh well well not all of us but but despite the fact that other than the indigenous folks on this land the americas as a whole have been populated by the descendants of colonizers and settlers and there's a and so we just need to assert that and then Realize that there are two myths that shape the American character. And one is uh, the myth of American exceptionalism. And now I want to be clear about that and calling that a myth. I do think that there are things that are exceptional about the American experiment. But the broad myth of American exceptionalism ultimately leads to a non-critical thinking view of American history. And so that's one myth. And the other myth is the myth of the melting pot. Meaning that if, the, the myth is, if you give up
2: your historical roots, and you give up language, and you change your name,
1: Uh, and you assimilate, then, uh, regardless of, uh, say the color of your skin, you will be accepted into the dominant culture. And it's a myth because it's only true for some folks. And, um, those two Myths are so important to the psyche of America that uh, we are almost on a on a society wide basis. We will defend those myths, and in doing so, we create we feed this sort of anti immigrant stance. I just said a lot of concepts, so I should just back down. Does Am I making sense?
0: Yeah, I make complete sense. Um, there's one thing that caught my attention. You called it the American experiment, so I want to come back to that. But mm. let's talk about this idea of internalized racism first. Mm. Define that for us, because my sense is from just hearing you say that, it's kind of like I think what even I experienced, like, the, you know, like I always tell people a joke it's like you want to test your indian parents racism so bring home a black girl or a muslim girl and we'll see how open minded <laughs> they are And it's kind of like is that cuz i feel like that's sort of an internalized racism like we just kind yeah. of like, yeah. we're like okay all of us know that that would be the the one the breaking test point right that might potentially be that. they they they'll say they're okay with it especially now with me being 45 and single still they're like we don't give a damn we just want you to meet someone right. <laughs> um but <laughs> Like that always has struck me as like, what would that be like? And you know, my friend Damon Brown, actually, uh, who is African American, he's married to an Indian woman, and I asked him about this, and I was like, wow, you guys must have the best food at your wedding. He was like, oh yeah, <laughs> we had salt and Indian food together. I was like, that sounds amazing, and a heart attack waiting to happen.
1: <laughs> well, and and so let's be let 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 let's expand our language a little bit because yeah. the kind of prejudice say that you're, and I'm imagining, are your parents Hindu? Yeah. Okay. So the, the kind of prejudice that we're talking about here, um, I would put under the rubric of systemic othering more -hmm. than I might use the construct of race to talk about, say, your parents' reaction if you brought home a Muslim woman. Yeah. And so what we're talking about is the relationship between Hindus and Muslims and let's also reference the six. And let's reference all the other religions that make up the, the land that used to be known as India, that perhaps is inclusive of Pakistan or Bangladesh, right? You've got this extraordinary experience. You also have a caste system,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Um, and so there's this, um, I mean, you tell me, how dominant is it, how 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 familiar is it that, say, an older generation might um, categorize people? Let's just use that term, categorize sure.
0: groups of people. Yeah, I think that that's fair because I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, obviously, caste is one of those things that nobody ever explicitly talks about, but my cousin in there was telling me that the only kids around when he was growing up because he was this really like hardworking kid and my grandmother was crazy and a tyrant in terms Mm. of making him work hard were the servants kids. Mm. And he would go out and play with them and she would get really upset Mm. that Mm. he was playing with those kids Mm. because she thought those kids were headed nowhere. Mm. Like, and and he said, how the hell would I know that? He's like, I was a kid. Like all Mm. I knew was that there were other kids to play with. Mm. 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 I mean, that seems like a, a sort of categorization example to me.
1: I, I I think I think it is. I mean, we don't know for sure what was in your grandmother's mindset, but um, and and I'm not going to attempt to. Um, w- Let me give you one on other cast. backdrop. Go ahead. Yeah,
0: yeah. one other backdrop to that is we're Brahmins, right? Okay, and that that obviously, like, it's kind of like, oh, we're from an educated caste. Funny enough, like it's not even our caste that is like the people who have the most money in India. In fact, the irony of India today is a lot of the people who are like
1: billionaires many times over came from like almost nothing. Right, right. Um. And so I'm imagining, and you tell me if this is true, I'm imagining that there's a reexamination of the implicit caste structure where in many cases the caste structure may be going away but you know you and I are old enough to remember the riots when um, I, I, how old were you when when Indira Gandhi's guards murdered her right what year was it you have to tell it's me. probably the nineteen seventies okay, right. so I was born in seventy eight okay, so it was just before you Yeah. No. um because that set off riots in which uh Thousands of Sikh, uh, uh, uh worshippers were murdered. Um, uh, and so, you know, the, the you asked about current anti immigrant feeling in the United States, and I'm going to put it back into this notion, and then you connected it to internalized racism. What we're talking about right now, where, where uh, racial awareness Structural, uh, dominance, a caste-like belief system are all examples of that internalized, uh, what I would refer to as an internalized racism, or more broadly speaking, an internalized or systemic othering. To use yeah. the term from John A. Powell, it's making someone else other than my tribe, it's a kind of tribalism.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know if you've read it. Uh, guessing just based on this conversation, you probably have is uh, Elizabeth wilkerson's book *Cast*. Yes, which basically, you know, like outlines the fact that there is almost an invisible caste system in America. That's right.
1: That's right. It, 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 it you know, the, the the takeaway that I took from doing the research for this book and writing this book. Was that, um, that the paradigm that, uh, can manifest in, say, anti Black racism is in fact part of a much broader paradigm in which dominant groups seek to maintain that structure of dominance over the less dominant group, whether it's men. Uh, through patriarchal systems over women, or it's, uh, say, Christian nationalists over, say, uh, those of the Jewish faith. There's this, there's this, um, propensity in the human experience to place people in castes, uh, to use the term more broadly. And then to support oneself in that view of oneself as better than, as then, and in its worst expression, the subcast becomes inhuman. And therefore it's justified to treat them in any way
2: you'd like to. Well,
0: let's specifically get into the book. You Mm. open by saying despite the COVID risk, many took the streets to protest. Behind my privileged locked gates and whiteness of my life, I watched as millions of people across the world gathered to demand an end to systemic racism and othering. For far too long, I'd enjoyed the ability to test my way through the discomfort and pain of systemic racism and the oppressive othering of those whose bodies, loves, and beliefs did not fit the heteronormative narrative that so dominates our culture. I'd been able to turn away from the hegemony of that narrative and its rootedness in and complicity with white supremacy and patriarchy. So tell me what was the spark that made you want to write this book based on what I've just read and quoted from from your book.
1: Well, as I detail, um, Mm -hmm. one of the people who uh, was protesting was my daughter, Emma. And um, as I often describe Emma, Emma is fierce as fuck. Um, she, first of all, her mom is Chinese American and she's very aware of her mixed racial identity. And I, I identify as white, I'm ethnically Italian and Irish. And, um, one of the things that happened was that one night she was protesting, um, in Brooklyn and the protests had started at Barclays Center. And like many others, thousands of others, she she moved with the crowd across the Manhattan Bridge um, and followed by a phalanx of police on horseback. And they were met by another phalanx of police on horseback. And so they were trapped in the middle of the Manhattan Bridge. And she starts texting me, terrified because they're pepper spraying And um, I realized in this moment that my daughter, who this, this year, last year turned 30, my daughter was putting herself on the line in a way that her father was not. And she was put, they, She was part of the large group of protests against the murder of George Floyd or sparked by the murder of George Floyd. But it wasn't just George Floyd, right? It was Breonna Taylor. It was, you know, the countless number of people who seemingly die um, at the hands of a structural over-policing that um, seemed to be an expression of that white supremacy that we we're talking about. And, you know, for further backdrop, my daughter, Emma, is the kind of kid who would say to me, you know, whenever I I would be, you know, I might get praised by the world for being a little bit more progressive or whatever, she'd sort of cock her eyes at me and say, Dad, it's not enough to be an ally. You have to be a co-conspirator. And what she challenged me to do was okay, put your mo- put your money where your mouth is or put, you know, live into the words that you're talking about. Because the truth of the matter is, I have been talking a good game for many years about better humans becoming better leaders. That's like my shtick. That's my whole gig. That's what my first book reboot was about. It's what my coaching is about. But if I just stop at encouraging people I work with to feel better about their leadership, to act better in small ways, if I just stop there, then I'm being an ally and not co-conspirator. Because the truth of the matter is the world is suffering right now from rampant systemic othering. And I would argue that to be a leader in the world today means confronting that othering from wherever it comes, whether it's from your own internalized racism and or in the world at large. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but that's where, what sparked this book. Well, Let's
0: get into this because, like, I'm thinking back to this episode we did. Um, and I know you, you mm-hmm. actually referenced John Dove in your book as well, mm. who's been a guest here. And I remember this was when the George Floyd thing was going on. And, uh, it, we did an episode about what it means to be black in America and we together a lot of like, really interesting clips from our guests. But one of those was from Trevor Noah. And mm. I remember when I heard it, it was a monologue about society being a contract. You may have seen this. Mm. Um, the, on, on the daily show and i remember i went to sean dove and i was like we want to use this clip but it costs four thousand dollars to get the license for it do you think you could help us raise the funds and he literally just paid for it and sent you know he paid oh, by a comment for us yeah i was like wow okay that's my buddy um yeah he's he's amazing um and i was really excited to see that he's working on a book when i saw yours i was like oh i need to reach out to him and find out when this book is coming out mm. but one of the the things that really struck me about that Trevor Noah clip and why I wanted to use it and if I remember correctly we started the episode with it and he he basically talked about you know society being a contract and the social contract mm. and he said you know people get upset that you know these people are you know looting and pillaging and plundering he said but then you know when somebody like George Floyd experiences what he does he's like where's the contract in that mm. like how are those people honoring the social contract mm. that we have in place and and so Start. Start there. Let's start there. I want to hear your your thoughts on that whole idea.
1: Well, I I I can speak to this from my vantage point, not from the vantage point of say someone who's like Sean, who is in a black man's body. Um. Uh. And so, from my vantage point, I think that uh. Trevor Noah's concept of that social contract, and more importantly, the contract being broken. Um, it's a really important notion. You know, part of, you know, you liked my term before the American experiment. Part of the, the experiment that gave rise to the myth of exceptionalism is this, uh, statement that has been less than true since it was first made. All men are created equal. Right? This is part of our founding mythos. But of course we stumble over that because, well, what about the women? Right. So we kind of look the other way. Um, and then we look at the people who wrote such statements, like all men are created equal and realize that many of them were enslavers. Okay. So we look the other way there, or we look at the founding um, experience of this country, which was mostly Europeans coming to this land and using technology and other means to um, displace the indigenous people. And we start to see those inherent contradictions. And yet there is something profoundly appealing about that, that contract, isn't it? I mean, it's you know, it's it's what drove, certainly it's what drove my immigrant ancestors to these shores, was the promise of that contract, which is all men are created equal, that opportunity was available for all, that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were prized above all else. Those are really powerful words. And when we fail to acknowledge that we break the contract every fucking day, we actually do a disservice
2: to the power of those words. You know, the promise remains. The promise of what this country could me remains.
1: And I think that, you know, if you want to strip away all of like, why did you write this book, Jerry? You're a leadership coach. What the heck are you doing in this space? Well, I'm a 60-year-old, white, cisgender, straight man who finally realized, you know, look, I've been cognizant of and awoke to systemic racism all my life, but I finally realized I do not want to pass from this mortal place without having punched at white supremacy, without taking a knock against patriarchy, without really leaning into a nativist anti-immigrant stance. I cannot go to my grave not having tried. I cannot look my children in the eye if I didn't try. And the fact is, you know, my domain of expertise, such as it is, is business leadership. So I'm going to come at this profoundly important question. Maybe the most important question of our lives, because what stops us from dealing with larger issues like climate? It's this. I have a moral responsibility to look at the experience of my fellow human beings through the lens of how can I make it better? How can I make a difference? And I'll be damned if I pass through this life without having tried that was if you will the lesson of the summer of 2020 the summer of protests which felt a lot like the summer of 1968
2: and 1969 that was the lesson as what is my work to do Wouldn't you say that we all
1: have that same moral obligation? Yes. There's a quote, uh, an epigraph that I used to start chapter seven of the eight chapters. And it's from the Talmud. And it goes something like this. It is not yours to complete the work, but neither are you at liberty to ignore the work. It is not yours to complete the work. You do not have to say, shrug your shoulders and say, this is too hard, so therefore I'm not going to try. You are not at liberty to neglect the work. And yes, Srini, it is all of our responsibility. I would argue there's a slightly more responsibility for those of us who have power. And the more power you have, the more responsibility you have to actually lean into the question of our time. The qu- listen, babies are being shot to death. Fourth graders are shot in a schoolroom in Ovalde, Texas. Gun violence is the number one cause of death for children under the age of 18.
2: Take that in gun violence.
1: Suicide is the number one cause of death for gender-questioning trans teens. Suicide. Take that
2: in. We have razor wire
1: floating in the Rio Grande to stop desperate immigrants from trying to save
2: their babies. I don't know,
1: I, I can't imagine a more important act of humanity than for us to take up the mantle of this work. And yeah, 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 people say, well, I'm a CEO, I'm a business leader, what should I do? You're a human being first.
2: That's your first responsibility.
1: Sorry, I get a little wired, a little amped up when I talk about this. So
0: That's why I told you we needed more than an hour. <laughs> so one of the things that you say in the book is it's time we recognize how our traditional definitions of leadership maintain systemic oppression and othering. It's time for a new definition of leadership in which inclusivity and equity are the center of our, of our actions as leaders so that belonging may flourish. And before we hit record, I told you that I thought that this was literally a radical restructuring of the entire note uh, of society at large. And you said, well, I think it's, you know, leadership, but I, I would you to know, push back against that and say, I think it's far bigger than that. Hmm.
1: Well, maybe it is far bigger than that. You know, maybe it is. Um, but sometimes, Shini, I think what happens is if we, if we see the enormity of the task we shrug our shoulders and give up.
2: And so, um,
1: for whatever reason, as a business person, I have been trained to look at points of leverage. And if we start with redefining what does it mean to be a successful leader, we will affect a profound
2: change we will affect a systemic
1: change. And so I like to focus on points of leverage. That's how you move the world.
2: Right? So in in this case we judge leadership
1: especially in business by the accumulation maintenance or, um, uh, increase in wealth. You know, you can take all the complex metrics around OKRs and KPIs and stock valuation and this. And I'm stupidly familiar with all of those things. Okay. But in the end, what are we really re- measuring people by? We're measuring people by, um, Did they make someone richer? Themselves, shareholders, whatever.
2: Okay. I get that that's an important
1: lever. But the problem is that we limit our point of view to just that accumulation or increase in wealth. We don't actually do the moral thing and say, well, how? did you increase that wealth? And, you know, to be somewhat facetious and tongue-in-cheek about it, I can, I can create a fentanyl lab in the United States and sell fentanyl-laced opioids throughout the United States and make a ton of money. That's immoral, right? We already draw these lines. There are things that are acceptable and things that are not acceptable to us individually. What those things are varies from person to person. But for the most part, we limit our work to things that we
2: would define as lethal, okay? For the most part.
1: Since we're already applying a moral structure, why not expand that moral structure? Why not say that part of the business of a successful business is to create more leaders? That part of a business that is a successful business is to create a greater sense of inclusivity so that all people who encounter that business, either as customers or employees, have a greater sense of belonging. Now, I know that's quixotic. I know that that's, Pie in the sky, or as you point out, maybe results in a changed society. But what are we on this planet to do if not to make the society better? And again, how am I going to, how are you going to look your nephew in the eye when he grows up and starts to realize the way the world is wired? How are you going to look him in the eye and say, "Well, I was too busy."
2: Fill in the blank to actually
1: do the work that's before me.
3: Hold up.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with tap to pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too so visit stripe.com/ tap iPhone to learn more Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips
1: Sorry to make it so personal, but you see the point I'm making So
0: you said that the people who have power or are in power have probably a greater, more obligation than almost anybody mm. to do this work or more so. One, let's define power here in mm. this context, because like, as I'm having this conversation with you, I'm thinking about Silicon Valley CEOs like Travis at Uber and mm. some of the behavior that we've seen in which it seems that people in positions of power are abusing and exploiting their power for the accumulation of wealth.
1: Yeah. So, uh, well, I think, I think you ask a really important question. So let's, let's define various forms of power. Um, and, and by the way, there's a fantastic book on this called the right use of power. It's, uh, I'm blanking on, uh, the author's name, but she is quite compelling. But if we take a step back and we talk about um, power that is projected onto us by dint of our identity or, you know, in my case, my body. So there's very little that I do that, that th- there's very little that I have done to warrant the power that I can uh, wield. So there's that kind of power. But I think what we're really focused on right now is the power that comes from role. And the role is um, being a person in business leadership. And, you know, implicitly you talk about sort of those who wield that power with toxic consequences. Um, in some ways, my first book speaks as much to that As the second book. But in the second book, in Reunion, I speak about the fact that, um, so many of our leaders, business leaders, political leaders lack the moral guidance of elders. Um, the, the kind of people who would box your ears and say, sit up straight, wear clean underwear, be nice to people. Right. There's this, like, th- th- this gap that happens. And I think that some of the business leaders in particular in Silicon Valley, or more specifically in the sort of technology sector have, uh, have that lack. Um, but I think that there's a corollary challenge, which is that there's a mythological understanding or a misunderstanding of perhaps libertarianism or even more broadly meritocracy. Um, there is such a profound belief in uh say meritocracy that uh it causes a, a rejection of any effort to balance the scales, to create equity. Um, And there's a whole psychological reason why that that's going on. There's a belief system that um, uh, I have what I have merely and only because of my own efforts, not because I might have been advantaged Because of the caste I have come from, or because of the gender with which I identify, or because of the way I have been racialized. For us to acknowledge the fact that those experiences created certain advantages somehow gets internalized as a diminution of my own accomplishments. And that's so unbearable that any effort to create fair and equity, fairness and equity within an organization gets tossed out the window. So again, I just said a lot in
2: response. Did that address? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, so let's talk about the, the process of doing this because you allude a lot to understanding what our ancestors went through. But speaking of accomplishment, there's something that stood out to me. You mm. said that for years, my life was marked by the persistent sense that I was nothing. For example, if I wasn't doing something, accomplishing something mm. and that the clear sign of my worthiness was what I had accumulated more than say how my family felt. I had to tell you, I have like, if I, if I were to identify one theme in probably the last nine conversations i've had this year it would be this sense of not feeling like you're enough right right like it seems almost universal like jennifer it's, wallace wrote this amazing book uh called never enough when achievement culture becomes toxic yeah uh, yeah well and it's just, just felt persp- in every conversation it's it pervasive
1: and and i mean you know it's one of the themes that i lean on and explore um Dramatically in reboot, the first book, and it's one of the themes that people related to uh, so greatly. Um, as a result, people feeling their that their own stories were being described in in reboot. In reunion, I link this the pervasiveness of this experience. In a kind of non-conscious, I'm not, I'm not asserting in a conspiracy theorist way that somebody has designed this whole system. But I am asserting that a pervasive and persistent sense of not being enough, not being good enough is actually quite useful to the system as it operates. It's quite useful because um, it creates this inherent fear and so that the hamsters run faster and faster on the wheel in order to get rid of the feeling of not being enough. And we see this in, in businesses, for example. We see this when, you know, companies will sit on and this is a crazy number. One trillion dollars of cash and place it overseas out of the the reach of u s. tax authorities for what reason?
2: I mean, at some point, how much is enough? You know
1: if you If you look at this phenomena and and Jennifer's book does a great job of looking at it from a personal perspective, if you expand that and look at it on a collective basis, the the never enough mindset will lead us to extract every drop of fossil fuels, will lead us to extract every piece of lithium out of the earth, will lead us to extract every ounce of labor free, or low-paid that we can possibly get, it will lead us to a point of our own devastation and annihilation. I mean, look, I'm not the first to say this. Every wisdom tradition I've ever encountered warns about this mindset. People go to war. Because they can't assuage their never-enough feelings, let alone create toxic work environments. And, you know, an achievement mindset is an example of this kind of pervasive lack of of, of belonging even to our own self. That's what I really try to connect it to. See, if I know to whom I belong, if I know where is home, if I know that I'm going to be loved unconditionally, then maybe I can wield power in a way that creates love, safety, and belonging for
2: everybody else. And that just feels like a better way to live.
0: Well, let's talk about the role of ancestors because Mm. you say that to complete the process, to grow fully into the adult we were born to be, we must also be free of what happened to our ancestors. As hard as it is to release ourselves from the travails of childhood, it's often harder to let go of what happened to those who came before us. This is what it takes to become the ancestors our descendants deserve. We must each see fully see our ancestors. This is the foundation we must unearth and sometimes rebuild to become the person, the adult we were meant to be. And as I showed you before we hit record, I was trying to kind of understand mm-hmm. this and I had, you know, my AI chat tool. I said, connect the entire experience of what Jerry talks about here to the British rule of India. And I was kind of stunned by what it came back with. And I thought, mm-hmm. wow, this is really interesting. In fact, just to give you sort of one mm-hmm. quote here, uh, in terms of the things. So like, Basically, it says in Colonna's concept of othering is also relevant to the British rule of India. And this is what struck me the most. It said the British often perceived Indians as the other, a group fundamentally different from themselves. This perspective allowed them to justify their actions, including the exploitation and oppression of the Indian people. This othering created a deep divide, disrupting the sense of belonging and unity. Yeah. So take me back to the
1: question again.
0: Well, what is the role of... of This, as far as our own process of reunion, talk to me about Mm -hmm. what we need to be doing in terms of understanding our ancestors. Because to me, like I said, that was just a surface level answer to... Well,
1: maybe the best way to explain it is to ask what happened to you. What happened to you, Srini, when the connection to British rule in India became so clearly identified? What happened for you? What did you see? Well, so let's
0: keep in mind that, you know, my parents were out of India by the time I was born. Uh, Even though I was born there, I never lived there. But your parents
1: were born in India?
0: Yeah, yeah, so they saw it. And my dad has told me stories about this. He said, he's always said, he's like, India was one of the richest countries in the world Mm -hmm. prior to British rule. And he said they came in and they pretty much took everything. Mm. And there are two things that I think about. I remember one of the things that was a paradox that I had to finally resolve. Like for the longest time, I had thought, especially given the nature of the work that I do that kind of just goes against the traditional Indian grain of doctor, lawyer, engineer, mm. whatever, that my parents' advice to choose and pursue stable careers was, incre- was misguided and narrow minded. Mm. But then I had to really understand it from within the context that they were giving that advice, which was that they grew up in a situation where their life outcomes were binary, poverty or security, nothing in between. It isn't the India that you see today where some kid comes out of a slum. Like, you had no upward mobility if you didn't get educated and you didn't have a stable life. And that, from that point forward, I realized that the advice that they were giving was based on the experience that they had. And what was that experience? That for them, it was very clear that it was either poverty or security. There was nothing in between.
1: And what happened to their parents?
0: That I don't know a great detail about, but chances are they were probably, at the the time when their parents were young, probably that was when the British ruled India.
1: Right. So because partition only happened, what, in 1949? I believe so, yeah. Right, and the partition happened partially uh, after the British withdrew, after the, the World War II, right? And so what you're talking about is the consequences of millennia of, or, or centuries of colonialism, right, um, still reverberating, if you will, through the experience of you Maybe even down into your nephew. And, uh, the, what, what, what you did prior to reading the book and what you've done after reading the book and using this concept, this tool to sort of connect these concepts is exactly what I suggest you do in the reunion process. It, uh, the, 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 there are myths that we tell about our ancestors. And more often than not, the myths are rooted around their resilience. Let me tell you, we came from nothing and we're here. Now, like a lot of myths, there's a truth there. Your family survived. But I think what's happening for you is that you're starting to unpack a deeper truth a more substantive truth and i would argue if we were if i were coaching you i might argue that there's a bit of homework you have to do which is to go back and understand the experience of your grandparents and maybe even your great grandparents because their emotional experience is embedded in your parents pressure on you to move towards something that would create security because the fear of poverty was so powerful. And I'll connect it back to what we were talking about before. It is possible that it's not just a fear of poverty, but it's possible it's also a fear of a loss
2: of status, right? Because
1: because your family is Brahmin, Your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, we believe,
2: were probably Brahmin, which means that not only did they fear losing financially
1: or being subjected to the impacts of colonialism, but they may have also feared losing that status and the privilege that came with that status which may have been the only privilege that kept them alive. Well, let's dive deeper into this idea of status, Mm -hmm. uh, because I think
0: it's wildly important. And it's funny you say that, because if I look back, if I look at my family, Mm -hmm. my mom's brothers were all professors. One was the dean of a university. The laziest of them all got a PhD in civil engineering, Mm -hmm. became a civil engineer for the government. He's considered the failure Mm -hmm. because he didn't finish the PhD. Um, and I remember writing this to my nephew and in this, this life advice book I was giving him, I said, you know, one of the blessings and curses of the family that you're born into is that the achievement level is insanely high. Like you are surrounded by parents. Like my sister was, you know, the chief anesthesiology resident at Yale. My brother-in-law, you know, went to Stanford, then Harvard, then worked at the White House. Mm. And I told him, I said, there are times you may feel like you're gonna be living in these shadows or that you have these impossible shoes to fill. And, you know, another sort of anecdote, and and I'm not sure exactly how it relates, but I remember, uh, you know, when somebody tweeted, uh, it was was an Indian person and showed 50 CEOs of some of the top companies in America, all Indians. And I honestly think for a lot of us, that was a moment of, of pride. And I remember I screenshotted that and sent it to my cousin. I was like, this is going to be you someday. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's status. And status is really, it's very, very like explicitly valued uh, in our culture.
1: Yeah. So, so there's a positive aspect to that because it creates a sense of role models. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a number of clients who sent me the same screenshot. Because they identify as Indian and they felt enormous amount of pride in that. Yeah. Okay. So if you, if you lean into the unspoken parts of that dialogue in your family,
0: right? I already know what I'm thinking right when you said that. (laughs) Tell me. Why am I not on that list?
1: Well, no, that's not what I'm thinking. But that's, well, that's what, what I, I think was thinking. you're thinking. That's no, that's right. what I said.
0: That's what I was thinking <laughs> is that there is a part of me that is thinking and, and I'm guessing that, is, that I'm not alone
1: in that. No, well, that's, that's the point. What is the dark side of that status awareness, let's call it? What's the dark side of that? How do you feel about yourself? not being on that list.
2: That it's a standard that I may never live up to. Do you hear the never enough in that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. Let's go one level deeper. If you are in touch with the family system structure that, Uh, that might give rise to an assertion like um, we would be lost if we lost our status.
2: What would happen to the family if achievement as a goal was given up? And it doesn't have to make sense, Srini. Just feel it. What would be your first response? What would happen? Well, I think
0: that for me it would bring like this just sort of sense of relief and almost lightness and joy that, hey, we're enough as it is like without any of this. Like we're accepted as opposed to you know, sort of being outcast. Like, I'll tell you, like, you may have seen my ridiculous reality TV uh, appearance on Indian matchmaking, and somebody asked, uh, when I asked the cast, uh, the casting director, was like, why do you guys want to talk to me? They're like, ah, we need somebody different. We got a lot of doctors, lawyers, and engineers. And whenever I was asked about an in interviews, I was like, I was cast as a token misfit because I didn't fit the mold mm. of any Indian.
1: Mm. So, so I did see that, um, but, but, uh, I appreciate the truth of what you've just said. And the truth of what you said is that it would be liberating for you. Yeah. But um I'm curious. Like, I often think that there's the prefrontal cortex adult response, which is it would be liberating. It would be a good thing. My nephew would be free of this burden if we want to project into the future a little bit. But what's the childlike response? What's the implicit fear that runs through the family if no one is an achiever? What's going to happen to the
2: family? Don't worry about it being true. Just, I'm just curious about what the, what the belief system is.
0: That's that's a tough one because like I'm it's one of those things I'm just like wow what would happen yeah uh, all that mean I don't I, you know like I have to sort of imagine possibilities mm. uh, as far as negatives I'm kind of like okay you know are we all just going to become is that basically a permission slip for people like my nephew to become deadbeats mm. which
1: is not what we want either mm-hmm. see I like the way you're leaning into that because you're using your your empathetic imagination to imagine. I don't believe that this is a belief system you hold consciously. I think that you're, you lean towards the liberation of not being doctor, lawyer, engineer, right? But, um,
2: but that fear that may
1: have been handed down to you is that people are going to waste whatever opportunity they've been given, and they're going to end up being, I don't know, ne'er-do-wells, dilettantes, someone who
2: is just self-indulgent and lazy. Does that resonate? Yeah, it does. So the the, the
1: unspoken fear here is... uh You know, you've got a career as a podcaster. You've got a career as a creative. You've got a career that's atypical, as the casting director said, for an Indian man. And the unspoken, undiscussed fear is that you're not going to amount to anything. And then the whole system starts to
2: fall apart. And I would warrant you're not the first in your family to carry that belief system.
0: Do you think that's true? Well, it's just as you said that, I'm trying to think about my dad leaving yep. India as a young immigrant. He actually left before I was born uh, because he had to start his PhD in Australia. And I, Punk part of me is wondering because, like, he basically came from this long lineage of you know, academics as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, all who are like professors and, uh, you know, like scholars. And there's part of me that is thinking in my mind, it's like, wow, I would never have imagined that he would be feeling that as well. How could he
2: not? You know, that's a conversation that
1: would be to go back to the book for a moment. That would be a reunion conversation. That would be a reuniting with certain aspects of your father's experience. What choice, what drove his choice to go to Australia to get the PhD? What drove his choice to come to the United
2: States after Australia?
1: What were the the messages he heard as a kid? that got internalized. See, I think you're right to sort of lean into this question of never enough. One of the powerful things about never enough, especially in cultures of uh, uh, where colonization is a phenomena, is that it ensures the survival of the
2: descendants because they will always strive
1: and will always find a way to survive. But the consequence is the inability to relax into a sense of persistent belonging.
2: I'm okay just as I am. I'm okay.
1: And I will work hard because it's fun or because it's creative. It's I'm not working hard
2: speak out of anxiety, out of a fear.
0: Let's talk about this in the context of parents Mm. with children who are listening to this. And we started this conversation by you talking about your daughter Mm. her basically calling you out Mm -hmm. to to walk your talk. So, for parents who are listening to this, uh, who have to prepare their their children for a future that is inherently uncertain, unpredictable, and as you said earlier, at that time it looked like the world was coming apart at the seams. If I were to pull together the headlines from NBC News Tonight from the last week, I would conclude that the world is coming apart at the seams.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So in a world that is coming apart at the seams, parents who are listening to this, what is their moral responsibility to their children in the society that we live in today?
1: Well, I'll tell you another story. I'll answer that by telling another story. And this is not something that that I shared in the book, but sort of implicitly was in the book. Um many years ago my daughter Emma uh, Emma teaches at a uh, charter school in Nashville and uh she started off as a teacher and then eventually she's now the director of curriculum so she oversees all of the teachers um and her dedication to um the kids in East Nashville which is an uh economically disadvantaged part of the city most of the kids um, are, uh,
2: uh, are black, um, her dedication
1: to those kids is profound. Many years ago, um, there was a young man named Michael Brown who was shot on a street in Ferguson, Missouri, and lay there for four hours before the police came, and he died in part because of the lack of responsiveness to his what eventually was his murder. And I remember Emma calling me up in tears. Um, she was training to be a teacher at the time with the same dedication. And she very tearfully said to me, Dad, what's the point? Michael Brown was a good kid. What's the point of me trying to educate kids who become really good kids
2: if they're just shot to death? And I cried with her. What is the point of trying in a world where kids are shot to death or
1: kids are denied entry into the United States that might give them safety and security or gender-affirming care is denied in their state because of a lack of understanding about the complexities
2: of misgendering.
1: And I said to her, I quoted my friend Parker Palmer, who speaks about a phenomenon called the tragic gap. And like the rabbi who wrote in the Talmud, Parker says that we're all asked to live in the tragic gap, and the gap is between the world that could be and the world as it is. And he makes the point that if we give over to the world as it is, and this is the lesson for the parents, if we give over to the world as it is, we condemn ourselves and our children to a kind of corrosive cynicism. Fuck it, I'll just grab all the toys I can get and I'll just take care of myself. But if we also live only for the world as it could be, we condemn ourselves to what he calls irrelevant idealism. And so the task of each of us as adults and each of us as a parent Each of us as a business leader, as a political leader, is to stand in the middle of that gap,
2: is to recognize that those headlines are horrifying. But if
1: I give up because those headlines are horrifying, then I am not the ancestor my descendant deserves. But if I live in this airy-fairy world of like a changed society and everybody's kumbaya getting along, then I'm out of the action. I'm not actually taking part in creating the world that I know I want to see. So the task for me, the task for you as an uncle, the task for parents, the task for elders, is to stand right in that really really difficult place between the world as it is and the world as it could be
2: and do our best that's it it's as simple as that and it's as hard as that remember something Srini. you are not at liberty to Neglect the world. Period. Talk about liberating. The only thing you have to do is try. Again, that simple and that hard. Let's talk
0: about this in one final context, Mm -hmm. which is politics and leadership. You say that we live in an era when politicians and others in power accuse the other side of being agents of a nefarious other. We live in a time when those seeking to gain and hold power call for secession, separation, and disunity, wielding systemic othering as a political weapon. Morality demands that we ask who benefits from separation, disunity, and its attendant violence. Morality demands that we inquire about complicity benefits and our willingness to take a stand to those who hold less power than we do. We're asking us to account for our lack of action.
2: Pretty Given good. Given that pretty
0: we are, sentence,
1: huh?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I, like I said, I told you, I, when I, the first pass of this book, I had to email you and say, Jerry, I can't do this today. Like I need, I need another three days to get through this, um, and do this properly. Uh, but we have an election coming up. Mm-hmm. this is a bizarre question or a bizarre way to frame it, but let's say that somebody said, you know what, Jerry, we think we want to take you out of your role uh, as a leadership coach for business leaders and we want you to advise the next presidential candidate um, as a campaign advisor. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about how this would play a role in that.
1: Well, uh, I don't have to imagine too far. Um, the Elie Wiesel gives us the answer, right? The great philosopher and uh, sociologist, commentator on the world, especially as it relates to a world covered by night, right? Um, The world of a post-Holocaust world. He says, neutrality always favors the oppressor. And I would, you know, if I was working with a uh, someone who is seeking political power, the first thing I would ask them to do is to consider what parts of their character structure is driving them. Are they dominated by a wish for power or are they dominated primarily by the wish to serve? And if you are dominated, if you truly are dominated by the wish to serve, then your pathway is clear. It too is simple but hard and may result in you not gaining the power that you seek. And that is, you must
2: take a stand.
1: Now, I would argue you must take a stand. On behalf of those who have less power, that ultimately that is the expression of
2: servant leadership.
1: The challenge is that doesn't benefit many of the more nefarious powers that be. That doesn't benefit the status quo. It doesn't benefit those who seek more than anything else, to see a reduction in their taxes. Even if it means babies get shot. Even if it means
2: a mother carrying
1: a baby across the Rio Grande gets cut on razor wire. Even if it means a turban man coming home from a temple is shot to death
2: because the shooter can't recognize the difference between a terrorist and a Sikh faithful. It, it The advice, I guess, I would give them is lean into your empathy. Lean into compassion. Call into question your desire
1: to lead, to to wield power. Surround yourself with people who will check your ego and make sure that you're operating from the better angels of your nature and not the
2: lesser angels. I don't know. It sounds like it's hard, but simple. Simple. The phrase repeated many times in this conversation. Morality to me
1: seems simple but hard, and I I think that that's our task is to is to move towards the moral stance.
2: Well, let's wrap this up with one
0: more area. One of the things that also caught my attention is that you say live long enough with the construct of less than, live long enough with your back against a wall and a knee or foot on your neck and that construct becomes your reality. Hmm. Substitute the words seller, colonizer, or even members of a master race, a better class, a more deserving cast and you can see how much constructs constructs feed the power dynamics that pass for organization structures and community hierarchies. And as I had mentioned to you earlier, I thought this was about far more than leadership. I thought what you're proposing here is a radical restructuring society as a whole. And the question is,
2: how do you even begin this work
0: while you account for the self-interest that so many people are driven by? I mean,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I think back to Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, mm-hmm. where the quote that stayed with me from that book was that self-interest is the engine of prosperity to a degree. Mm -hmm. I think that is true. I think that what we have seen as a society, as a country, uh, as a species, is self-interest pushed to the point of diminishing.
1: Yeah, I think that that's true. Look, um,
2: where do you begin? Wherever you
1: need to begin right now. You know, for me, it was um God gave me the ability to put two words together in a way that some might find compelling. So my work to do is to use that ability to put words together that might cause a revolution. So be it. That's my work to do. The risk is that I might lose status. The risk might be that I might be canceled, to use a common term but I'm not at liberty to, to neglect this work. I have to do this work. If I'm going to be true to my own values, if I'm going to operate with integrity, then I have to do this work. So where do we begin? We begin all right in our own lives. We begin in our own organizations. We begin by asking ourselves these questions. Your observation about Adam Smith's observation I think is spot on. We are at a point where self-interest as a motivation is at a point of diminishing returns. It has led us here. Now, the truth is, all of our wisdom traditions warn us against this point in time. This is not the first time the human species has dealt with this. Unfortunately, we deal with this all the time. And this is what I mean when I think about our elders. Listen to our elders. Read the philosophers. Read our spiritual leaders. They they have
2: prepared us for this. This is our moment. This is our moment to contribute mindfully to the world that can be. And we will fail. So what? Do it anyway. That's what your nephew is wanting you to do. What are you going to say to him 20 years from now? It was too uncomfortable. I wasn't sure of success. I was afraid of the loss of my achievement and status. what 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 will i say to my grandchildren anything less than i tried my best I, I that that doesn't i can't sleep at night so i will try my best and and i'll i'll close
1: by saying this i think you're right i think i am calling for a larger change than just in leadership
2: Um, but I'll repeat the lever that I would deploy for business leaders because they've not actually been drafted in this fight and it's time that they put their shoulder to the wheel.
0: Well, Uh, well, as always, a deeply profound, uh, conversation as I expected. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of it. What do you think it is that makes somebody or
2: something unmistakable? Hmm. Can I tell you what I hope it is? Yes. A willingness to be wrong. A willingness
1: uh, to be corrected. And I say that because, Srini, in writing this book, that was one of my fears. Um, and I had to lean into that. I had to say to myself, all right. So what if I'm wrong? So be it. Let's <laughs> all so be corrected and
2: I'll live. But I won't fail for not having tried. That's my commitment. So I think that's what makes people unmistakable, to try.
0: Amazing. This, as I said, has been deep, thought-provoking, riveting. I think one of those conversations that people will have to revisit many times. Mm. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. I think that this is probably one of the most important conversations we've had on the show this year.
1: Oh, God bless you for saying so. And thank you so much for, for really preparing yourself in the way you did. And uh, it, it, I feel honored. There's no other word for it. I feel honored uh, that you took the time to really understand what it was that
2: I'm trying to do with this book.
0: Amazing. Where can people find out more about you and your work, the book? Uh,
1: The best site will be uh, is uh, reunion.reboot.io. Actually, on that site, you'll have an excerpt of the book. You'll have a collection of stories of belonging written by a variety of different people there'll be a little mini documentary and uh, we've not yet announced it, but we're launching a limited edition short series podcast to go along with uh, the book. And uh, um, we're leaning in hard to support this book. So that's the best place to go to both experience the book and pre-order, which is uh, pre-orders are a good thing. That's that's what we're looking for.
2: Amazing!
0: And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh.
4: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration